Welcome to today's episode of the Ideonomics podcast, where we talk about inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility, and anti-racism in the Canadian public service. I'm your co-host, Neha Shizad Chandarajan, joining you from Ottawa, which is the land of the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. And I'm Sean Karmali, joining you from Toronto, which is traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Today on the podcast, we have with us Alexis Ford-Ellis, who's the Director for Workplace Wellbeing and Mental Health at the Knowledge Circle for, for Indigenous Inclusion. Hi, Alexis. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing great. To start off, I wanted to ask you um, just if you could tell us about your journey, um, where were you born? How did you get into the public service? Uh, how long have you been here with us? All right. So um, I know your audience isn't going to be able to see, but I wanted to share with you folks um, my talking stick. And this talking stick will um, be a little bit about who I am and where I come from. Uh, as you've already introduced, my name is Alexis Ford-Ellis. I am a Gwich'in woman. And uh, Gwich'in people are followers of the caribou. So I'm from the far, far northwest of uh, the Northwest Territories. Um, and although I am from that area, I'm with the um, Gwich'in Fort McPherson band. I was actually born in Edmonton. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. Um, Gwich'in people actually come from uh, um, Alaska and down into the Yukon and up into the uh, Northwest Territories around the, um, the Arctic Circle, Mackenzie River, uh, that, that area. Um, and uh, within uh, Canada, there are four uh, Gwich'in bands. So I am mm. a member of the um, Gwich'in Fort McPherson band, like I already shared. So this talking stick is uh, a little bit about who I am. It is um, um, made of uh, caribou antler which I love. Um, this was uh, gifted to me by an elder and the caribou antler is from the north. And so being a northerner at heart always, even though I haven't lived there as long as many of my other family, I have still a connection and I love that this antler comes from the north. In uh, here, you will see that there's some red felt and that is to um, remind me that we are sewers. And so um, I do a lot of sewing. I actually make lots of blankets. And during COVID, I've made over 30 blankets uh, oh, wow. for various people for various reasons. Um, I One of the ones that I love is, is my aunt uh, who attended residential school. Um, I made her one uh, um, and, and she was just so uh, overjoyed with it. And uh, I made uh, blankets for my nephews who lost their brother to COVID. And um, I've made blankets for others uh, just for, again, like various reasons. It's my, my way of giving back to whoever I can give back to. Mm -hmm. um, and I also make other things. Um, and I'm going to start making again dolls uh, for my grandchildren and others. And we'll see how that goes. Right here is some um, deer hide. And that's to remind me that there's more than caribou in the north. There's also deer. And I'm always grateful that both give of their life because they are both very tasty. I know not everybody will like that, but that is, uh, I'm a northerner. And then we see here are some beads, uh, red and white beads. Uh, the white beads are again, my connection to the north. It's a spirit of the north. And then the red beads are those of a healer. And uh, my journey has a lot to do with um, me becoming uh, the practitioner that I am. I learned that through massage, um, I had a gift for uh, helping people. And uh, then I became a reflexologist. I went into psychology. And so lots of what I do is around how do I help people help themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, and some folks will call that a healer. Some folks will call that other things. On this end here is some jingles, uh, bells. And uh, during COVID, at the beginning of COVID, many might've seen that there was um, uh, lots of young girls were doing the, the jingle uh, dress dance. And it's about, again, a gift of healing about a father who, um, whose daughter was dying and was given the dream of to 
for this young girl to wear this dress and to dance. And through that dance, she uh, became better. <clears throat> and then there are the beads, white, yellow, red, and black. And those are the Algonquin colors of the medicine wheel. Uh, because I am here as a visitor, residing and working on the beautiful uh, unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. So I need to always be mindful that I am a visitor and that this is their uh, territory and I'm learning from them all the time. And last is uh, some horse hair. It's on the end. And again, uh, the horse um, is a reminder to me that as a young girl, I did a lot with horses. I had a better relationship with horses than I did with humans, um, was always connected to them. And for uh, when I became a young adult, I uh, looked after about 80 head of uh, horses and was very happy doing that. Uh, having to talk to people was uh, not really a gift that I had, but uh, loved the horses. And it was a few years ago that I learned through the RCMP that they use a lot of horses in um, the workshops or in, in sessions around uh, trauma healing with the, the members who are uh, experiencing um, any type of post-traumatic stress disorder or complex PTSD. So, and it dawned on me that that's why maybe I had such a connection uh, to the horses is, is that they were my gift uh, of, in terms of how I was healing as a young child and horses are incredibly uh, sensitive. Uh, one of the things that I share in my story is, is my mother, um, my grandmother was born in Moosehide Creek, which is in the Yukon. Um, and then as a young girl, uh, traveled with her family to a clavic and um, my uh, grandmother met my grandfather there who was actually from Alberta and he's a Cree Métis man. Um, and uh, they helped build the town of a, a clavic at that time. Um, and my mother and all of her siblings were born in a clavic along the trap lines uh, of their own um, trap lines and whatnot. So when my um, um, grandfather had passed away when my mother was 16 and the day after he passed away her grandmother my great-grandmother passed away and this was very uh, hard on my mother being the eldest of uh, the eldest girl not the eldest child um, she then became kind of like the caregiver for a lot of her younger siblings um, and my grandmother at the time from what I understand was in um, was hospitalized for tuberculosis so the government came along around that time and relocated everybody from a Klavik to a Nuvik. And it was a town that they built in the late fifties. Uh, and that relocation um, for my mother and her siblings was a bit of a, a hard uh, thing because they had a good life in a Klavik and they were doing well um, and whatnot. But at about that time, many of my aunts and uncles were then put into residential school um, my mother was looking after the, the very young ones, and um, eventually my mother uh, did uh, work as well outside of the home, and uh, she eventually met my father, who went to Inuvik uh, for work, and uh, they uh, went to uh, Edmonton about uh, just a couple of months before I was born, and I was to be born in the Charles Campbell Hospital, which is uh, an Indian hospital for the Northerners. At least that's what we called it then. And um, at the time of my birth, I was born on Christmas Eve. Uh, my parents yes. couldn't afford anything back then, so I was their gift. Um, but uh, uh, when my mother got there, full into labor, she, my father had sent her in a cab and he had walked to the hospital. Uh, the doctors were outside, the nurses were outside, and they said because she was with my father, who was a white man, she wasn't allowed to have me there. So she was pushed away. And even though it had uh, negative connotations and stigma attached to it, it would have been a good place for my mother because she'd never really been away from home. She was 1300 kilometers away now, going to have a baby. And she was um, taken away from the people that she knew. And she was asked to, she was sent to the Royal Alec where I was born. And I was the Bronskin baby in that hospital. And we were both discriminated against on the day that I was born. Uh, because of all of that. So um, <clears throat> shortly after um, uh, my birth, we then moved um, back to the north. We were in Hay River, we were in Fort Smith, and we were back in Inuvik as well. 
Um, and when we were in Haverhill, my sister and I were um, in resident day residential school. I was there for just uh, one year and my sister was there for a couple of years. Um, and then my parents had decided they wanted to move us south to Edmonton again. And at that time, they wanted to move us south thinking that we would have a better life. And what they never realized is, is that the uh, school system in the south was as bad as residential schools were in the north or probably anywhere. It's if you were an Indian in the 60s, you were not seen as a good individual. Um, and at that time, there was lots of policy written things written on paper, but people's behaviors were such that uh, we were not seen as equals and we were not seen often as uh, good human beings, uh, even though we were equally great individuals uh, as people. So there was a lot of discrimination that we went up against. Uh, my father would want to take my mother out to dinner and he'd go to a restaurant, he'd have reservations and having a name like George Ford, good old British name, uh, they would give him the reservation, but he they'd get to the restaurant and they would see my mother. They'd take one look at her and they would tell him that uh, the, they were busy. They were full and that they were not welcome, even if the restaurant was okay. half empty. And uh, my mother, only having a grade six education, wanted a better life for herself as well. Um, and the Alberta government wouldn't allow her to return to school because uh, she was told that the school system was not for people like her. It was for uh, the non-Indigenous folks. So that was the beginnings of my life as a young person. And um, I often say that uh, <clears throat> even though I am, my father is white, my mother is uh, Indigenous. Uh, my father raised us to be proud of who we were, to, to always remember that we were Indigenous. Or, um, and so we weren't raised to, to think that we were white. We weren't raised to think that we were half-breeds. We were raised to believe that we were good uh, Indigenous people. And um, although there was lots of alcohol and drug abuse in the family, uh, we never lost sight of who we were. And I always uh, say in my presentations, I was born uh, an Indian baby. I am always been an Indian person. And so I'm very proud of, of who I am now. I've written lots to come to where I'm at, but um, that's a little bit about just who I am in my journey. Uh, there's lots more because um, probably your two ages put together is my age. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of that and for showing us the talking stick. I love that there's so many of your different aspects represented on that stick, like a sower and a healer and lover of horses <laughs> but your connection to horses as well as healers yeah thank you and I uh, just want to also say that I'm really sorry to hear about your nephew about during COVID yeah. <clears throat> I hope your family is, is doing okay they are everybody is and I think it was um I'll just share this really quick I actually lost um, my stepsister lost her um her son as well to COVID um oh. and my sister lost her son, I think just before COVID hit and everything was saying that he, chances are he had COVID, but we weren't saying anything like that uh, mm -hmm. in February of 2020. But um, my nephews were visiting my father who was in care and they uh, had made, I just made a blanket for my dad. I was thinking, you know, this man has been in care and I hadn't even had the common sense to make him a blanket. So I made him one and made him just happy. And all my nephews loved it. And I just thought, oh, my God, you guys, you can't steal grandpa's blanket. It's for him. <laughs> and so uh, I promised them all that I would make them a blanket in memory of their brother. And they uh, so they picked their colors and they all got blankets. And then everybody wanted a blanket. So I've just been <laughs> nonstop making blankets. Oh, my goodness. But that's so great that you could give them a give them a little memory as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I was wondering how you got into the public service after, oh, after oh. that rich history. Yeah, that's a, that was a, I think it's like everybody, you know, you, you get in and you just think, uh, I, I'm just here for the summer and then I'm out of here. Uh, who wants to work for government? 
at least that's what I thought. Um, my aunt actually worked for Manpower. So back in the day, long before um, mm -hmm. uh, HRSDC, ESDC, EIC, they were all referred to as Manpower. Mm -hmm. And that's how they um, help people get jobs and whatnot. And so she, um, she, there's a program called the Native Internship Program that government was um, putting out there. And I was the first of all of the family to actually go to university. Um, and it was uh, interesting because when I was in university, I also learned that I was functionally illiterate, which means I graduated from high school, the only one actually at that time, uh, without learning how to read and write. And at the time when I was going through school, it was nobody wanted to deal with an Indian kid again. So mm -hmm. we just put them through. And they had wanted to put me into a special school and I didn't want to go and yada, yada, yada. So I got into university because I was Indigenous. And then I had to pass some exams, uh, which mm -hmm. one was uh, an English entrance exam and then something else. And anyways, found out through all of that, that I had a learning disability, that I couldn't properly read and write and that nobody really expected me to, to, to make it through. Mm -hmm. um, and even I started to believe that. But uh, anyways, uh, the good thing is, is that um, I persevered. I was able to, by my third year, uh, write an exam without any problem. And, um, and I graduated just barely making it, but I was uh, happy to. And because I was in university, um, uh, I was able to apply for the um, Native Internship Program with government. And at the time, being uh, a young Indian woman, every government office in Edmonton wanted me. Uh, and also because I could type. If What a weird skill, right? I could type. And so everybody, and I can remember this one woman saying, do you know any other Indians that know how to type? And I'm thinking, I want the job. I don't know anybody. So... <laughs> As it turned out, they needed people who could type and they had jobs. I just didn't realize that. So that was the start of how I got in. Um, and I actually uh, started in um, in old EIC and uh, it was uh, in human resources. I was just a summer student. Uh, they liked that uh, my work ethic because I was a hard worker. And so they kept me over the summer um, for my third and fourth year and then um, after I uh, graduated university, they offered me an indeterminate um, a CR4. And then I, it's just, uh, that's how I uh, started there. And I wasn't able to get a promotion at EIC, but uh, the PSC was willing to um, take me on and they were gonna deploy me or transfer me at the time it was called. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I'm already a CR4. I don't need another one. If you want me, I want an officer position. And so nice. they took me into a training position. Um, and then when I was in the training position, I learned that other people were getting uh, better pay in a different classification. So I put together a rationale. Uh, they, mm. they put me into that new classification, back paid me, and they kept me uh, for about six years. And then I went out to... Um, a place uh, in um, Vegreville, mm -hmm. uh, which was called the Case Processing Center, it was a part of immigration, um, was probably uh, the worst unhealthy move I've ever made. And it was uh, why I resigned from uh, government at the time. Um, and I left government for about three years and then came back in to Health Canada. Um, they didn't want to keep me indeterminately but uh, justice had a position and then I was at justice for 20 years so I have this career of going on maybe 40 years of service it's a long time yeah my so. goodness what a crazy story can I ask you a question who's going to be playing you at the Netflix documentary <laughs> when is that coming out when can I watch that <laughs> oh you're so sweet no I'm well, I'm glad you didn't believe everybody who said that you wouldn't be able to get an education because clearly you managed to far exceed expectations and make such a huge impact as you've done yeah, so. So pretty grateful glad. for all of it. Um, maybe what I can share with you is a little bit about how, um, like right now you're seeing a good person. Uh, and I, I've always been good, but I've also always been very angry and hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a moment in government where a lot of that changed. And um, I was in um, 
uh, Edmonton for many, many years and uh, uh, always in HR. Don't know how I got into HR. It's not something I would have gone into normally, but mm-hmm. I tried all the fields, all the disciplines. I even went to university to get a personal certificate so that I knew what I was talking about and it didn't really make a difference. But um, I uh, I did okay in it. Um, and I'd have to say that one of my biggest uh, things is because I was so angry, it's kind of like people don't know it when they are angry, but they have an energy of almost like a chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And you want to be good and you want to be okay, but you don't know how to. And people don't want to tell you that you're not nice. They skirt around the issue, you know, and it's like, um, I knew something was the matter and I would try to, I'd go to counselors, I'd go to doctors, I'd try all kinds of things, mm-hmm. but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And um, I actually had this really great uh, EAP counselor. I didn't always have good EAP counselors, but this one in particular, when I, I came back into government and she had recognized that I had still been hanging on to a lot of the um, sexual assault, abuse, and rape that had happened to me as a young person. And when I look at the wellness wheel, I talk a little bit more about that, but I was hanging on to it and I hadn't really healed from it. So she sent me off to the Edmonton Sexual Assault Center. Mm -hmm. And I had a great counselor there who really, really helped me. And it was kind of like finally getting to a point of accepting who I was as a person and realizing that I was a good person. Mm-hmm. And this is at my early 40s, but it wasn't fully uh, everything that changed me. What had changed me was I had, um, we were, I was working at Justice and I had a colleague who, um, who we were together as colleagues, we were great, but uh, he was uh, put into the uh, director role. And as the acting uh, regional director, I don't know, we just didn't jive and and I started getting I felt picked on and this is my interpretation of things I've never ever resolved it with this individual but uh, I share the story from my perspective and um, Mm -hmm. he uh, just seemed to pick on me and I would share emails that he sent to me because of things that I was asking and my colleagues didn't know what was the matter but the emphasis of everything is is people didn't want to be around me anymore because they didn't want to be treated the same way and so and then I was annexed and you know I wasn't invited to meetings and I was kind of like it really was somebody who wanted to push me out Mm -hmm. but they called me into his office one day and I'm sitting in his office and labor relations is there so I'm in HR I know when labor relations is there something's up right And I'm nervous and I can remember just hanging on to my chair and thinking like, what the hell is going on here? So he's in his chair and it was an open concept. So there was no desk or anything in between us. And he was on a chair with wheels. Well, as he's talking, he's getting more and more excited, right? And so he's getting closer and closer to me and I'm freaking out and I'm sweating and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have no idea what was going on. All I know is, is I was getting scared. So he got too close to me and I just bolted right up, opened the door, run out, slammed the door behind me and run to my office. Oh my God. And um, I was scared and I thought, what the hell is going on here? And I phoned the ICMS office. I'd been talking to them because I wasn't sure what I could do. Mm -hmm. And this woman answered and she's talking away to me like, you know, and I'm all upset and then she's so sweet. And she says, um, she finally, after I calmed down and whatnot, she says to me, she goes, Alexis why do you attract such abuse thinking holy shit I said this is his fault you know I'm all upset and whatnot and that was a turning point and and I talk about it a lot it's like it was such a turning point in my life to realize that I attracted abuse because I had only ever known abuse you know I'd grown up in this alcohol and substance using family my ex was a, a chronic um marijuana smoker loved his alcohol and no matter where I went, I was always around that. And I thought and that was the chip on my shoulder. That was what was keeping me from being a better person. Mm. So it was, um, it took a few days for that to all sink in and for me to actually come to that realization. A lot of tears, massive headache from crying. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but when I came to it, I dawned on me, I thought, you know what? I now have a personal responsibility. I get that I'm a part of this problem, so I have to clean up my act. And if I'm going to leave justice, which I didn't, by the way, um, I want to leave on a good note. I don't want to leave on a sour note. And so that really changed uh, a whole lot of how I did things. And I was at the time still an officer. So when I moved into management and into that role of director, I wanted to uh, do things differently. I wanted people to be heard. And I wanted people to know that we were listening to them. Yes, there was a process through labor relations. And I can tell you, the labor relations advisor, after I opened the door and slammed it, came and said, you know, that's insubordination. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, but I was scared. So if he wants to complain, he has to prove why he didn't scare me. And if I want to complain, then I have to prove what he did was wrong. And neither one of us were going to go down that, that road. Um, but through labor relations uh, in the, you know, later when I started dealing with more complex cases and managers started coming to me, my first conversation was always, have you had a conversation? Have you talked to them? Do you know why they're behaving or acting the way they're acting? Mm -hmm. Because we can't ever resolve something through a process if we don't talk to people. And I can mm -hmm. tell you lots of people. When you work with a bunch of lawyers, they don't often like to talk. They're very good at their work, but they don't often like to talk to people about feelings or about situations. Uh, because uh, the, um, the law that we know of is very process-oriented. So, yes. you know, it, it helped me that moment changed who I was. And I think I became a better person. I actually liked myself a whole lot more. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was because I was menopausing and um, I don't know, my doctor was feeding me more estrogen. And then, so I was like becoming a nicer person with more estrogen and less testosterone. I don't know. Ooh. I just, I felt like I really got lucky. Um, and from there, I was also at the time, you know, returning to work full time from being a part-time uh, worker for so many years while I raised my three older girls. I had a young baby and had to return to work when she was five weeks old. I was a single mother going into management and then I was accepted into my graduate studies all at the same time. But I could handle it because somehow my life had changed and I just was so grateful of the good that I was starting to see. I'm so grateful that you shared all of that with us. I mean, even the part where um, we don't get often to hear about when people were angry or rageful um, and how they used that to, to turn or to change. Cause there's always, I mean, of course there's always like the, a little bit of stigma where you're, you're afraid of how you're being perceived. So I'm really grateful that you were able to share that because like you said, so much good came from it yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And even just going into labor relations, like that is, it is such a scary thing. Even just when you're going through your story, I was tensing up because I was like, oh my God, like what would I do in that situation? And to hear that not only did you come back and that you had um, a, a, at least a little bit of help with people who were able to direct you or ask the right questions to you. When I, uh, after I did my master's, um, mm -hmm. it was in uh, how is the medicine well considered in therapeutic, pra therapeutic practice. And part of the reason was, is because, again, I went back to that. How are we introducing Indigenous uh, ways of being in our healing? And mm -hmm. I kind of thought, you know, you know, I was kind of like on this little bubble ride or whatnot, that um, there was all this good out there, but I couldn't find anything. And it was through that research that I learned that a lot of um, research at the time, and this is only about 10, 12 years ago, didn't include uh, how Indigenous people were being allowed to use their own traditions, cultural ways. And it's not like you have to go to a shaman or you have to go to a healer, mm -hmm. but simple things like sewing or beading all of that is such good medicine, you know, mm -hmm. being able to go hunting, 
it's knowing that creator is providing you with an opportunity and that an animal will give its life in order for you to have um, substance for you and a family and, and members of the community. Uh, I just, uh, I find that so incredible. Even the drumming that folks do. There's a movie just recently, um, uh, Run Woman Run, and it's with uh, Longboat, who is a, an Indigenous runner from Six Nations. And uh, it's so cool because, you know, she's, she's grieving the loss of her mother and some things that have happened in her life. She loves donuts and, and Tim Horton's coffee. She goes and gets a coffee and she says, yeah, can I have a, a medium or a large cup of coffee, five sugar and five cream? And I'm thinking, holy crap, that's a lot of sugar. <laughs> during this, Sounds like me. <laughs> uh, movie, she's, she meets the ancestor Longboat, who's a runner. And he's telling her, he says, yeah, you know, woman, she goes, you are part of who I am. So you've got it in your uh, DNA. Run, woman, run. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is fantastic. I really resonate with all like the different pieces that it takes for you to feel well, you know, like sewing or running. And it, it just reminds me of our previous podcast with um uh, Bohang Benedicts, who is a psychologist, and she was talking about how like all come together and in practice, which is really cool. I think it was kind of amazing because a lot and too because of my experience of being um, a victim of sexual assault and rape, mm-hmm. I didn't like to be touched, and so yeah. I told you that I quit the government, and uh, when I quit, uh, EI was really good to me at the time, and they just they understood why. I, I left the place that I left. They were very supportive of me. And partly they said, you know, if you can find a program, we can sponsor you to continue the program. We'll, we'll pay you to, to do the program. And so the only thing that I could find that would fit their uh, parameters was massage therapy. And all I could think is, is, oh my God, I have to touch somebody's body. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, but I signed up for it. I started the course and I, I had no idea how I was going to get through this. But on day two, we had to do kind of like a little bit of a practicum. So I go and I can tell you, I went to, to do an effleurage on the person in my partner's um, uh, back. And it was like this, this incredible energy just went through me. And it was, in my mind, it was spirit telling me, this is your gift. Mm. And I just thought, oh my God. So I really did a lot to learn how to work with the body. And lots of people will, um, I found with a lot of my colleagues who are massage therapists, they would work with their hands. And as um, I think as a healer, you don't work with one part, you let that energy flow through you. So I really learned how to be able to allow the energy to move through me. But as I was working on people, I could remember people saying, wow, where'd you find that knot? Oh, where'd you find? And I'm thinking, Ah. how do you not know that this is going on in your body? I can feel it. You should know it. But I was, and I think that comes back to what your comment is: is that I was so surprised that people were so unaware of what was going on in their body, and it was um, coming from their their thoughts. You know, the the messages that they were feeding themselves, and and I know we have better messaging now when we do better, but it's amazing how that all uh, comes into play. Um, when I had finished my uh, master's degree, I was still being a massage therapist, more just as a volunteer. And I especially would do it in um, uh, around Indigenous ceremonies and whatnot. An elder had been teaching me how to reintroduce healthy touch because so many Indigenous women like myself had been negatively, um, had seen touch as unhealthy. So how do we reintroduce um, a healthy touch? And and I would be invited to uh, sweats. And uh, this one time there was a shooting down in Tassina Reserve and I was invited to go down there. I couldn't, but it was to be able to help the community heal uh, through such a, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I learned through all of that and after uh, my degree or my uh, doing my master's is that I got into mental health and it was through the Mental Health Commission of Canada. I, I was became a mental health first aid instructor, we're finding better ways to deal with it. 
and they just needed to find ways to to start to look after themselves and through so through this teachings i was able to help a lot of people figure out what are those resources that we can tap into not only the the resources external to us but what are those internal resources mm-hmm. like how do we breathe so that we can slow ourselves down how do we change our our messaging you know we hear it all the time uh, people would say all the time to me love yourself how the hell do you do that you know people go, yeah thanks. Go love yourself yeah. like what a dumb thing to say mm-hmm. but then I figured out you know I had four girls and I thought how do I love my babies well I make sure that they're fed that they're changed if they need that you know I cuddle them that they eat and I dawn on me that's how you love yourself Alexis you start to do those simple things. Mm-hmm. Just make sure that if you're hungry, you eat. If you're tired, you sleep. And even to this day, you know, my girls are all adults, but they know if you're tired, you go to bed. You do not stay up and make it worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think, wow, what a cool thing to teach. So now, you know, when I do a lot of what I do, I say self-care is a dream. D, you drink your water and not as a mix. You know, mm-hmm. got to remember that. Are you rest your body and your soul because they need rest. You can't always keep pushing them. Eat nutritiously. As much as I like junk food, I need to have a salad with it. You know? uh, affection for yourself. Give yourself good, healthy self-talk. You're doing great today. You know, let's go for a walk. Let's, let's smell the roses. Uh, you're not alone. You have all kinds of energy around you. And M, movement is medicine. And, and it's just remembering that those are just very simple things. But if we do those simple things, we start to really look after ourselves. And when we look after ourselves, then we're really capable to look after everybody around us in a much better way. Wow. Thank you, Alexis. And I, I just wanted to share that I, I did take note of that acronym. And um certainly going to make that a little bit bigger and and put onto my wall because Mm -hmm. just as you mentioned, you know, affection Affection. and, and movement, you know, it, it makes me think about how, uh, you know, even in the workplace setting, how to incorporate those balanced in a way, just shifting a little bit of the conversation here into mental health still, but also sort of your, your current role and, in your current role, uh, perhaps maybe you can share a little bit about might be involved in, in the work that you do and how you communicate that to others. Great. Uh, yeah, so um, the Knowledge Circle for Indigenous Inclusion comes out of the uh, Many Voices, One Mind report. Gina Wilson is Deputy Minister Champion for Indigenous Employees, for Federal Indigenous Employees. And she had, um, um, along with a, a small team, uh, initiated um, kind of like a bit of an audit or a cultural audit of all Indigenous employees across the federal government in about 2014, 2015. And the first report of Many Voices, One Mind came out in December of 2017. Uh, from there, uh, Deputy Minister's Task Force was put together on uh, reconciliation, and uh, they liked the report. And so they had asked for kind of like some summary reports and also uh, an action plan. And so an action plan was put together, and uh, from there, it was uh, determined that the Knowledge Circle for Indigenous Inclusion would be kind of like the secretariat for that report and would be the support for our deputy minister champion. Um, And so in 2019, the Knowledge Circle for Indigenous Inclusion was initiated or ignited by um, our senior executive director, Michelle Brazo. And uh, he has, from that time, like there was a small little group of about three or four, maybe five individuals. And then uh, myself and my colleagues, we joined in uh, probably the early 2020, just before COVID hit. And from there, uh, we've uh, created the Indigenous Wellness Strategy. And what we started to look at was how do, how do we look at helping our Indigenous colleagues? And what does this look like? So my uh, colleague, Anna, and I had taken a a workshop with uh, Elder Phil Lane, and uh, it was on the teachings of the, what we call now the teachings of the sharing circle. 
And at the time we were kind of like, we had no equipment. We were all on our personal computers. We were on Gmail communicating with each other. And so we took this and we were learning Zoom and we weren't even on MS Teams at the time, uh, but we took this uh, session and it was about seven weeks. We ended up being with about 200 people around the world learning about wow. uh, sharing circles. It was really, really cool. And after we uh, did that, um, shortly thereafter, when we finished, uh, was just about the time that George Floyd had been uh, murdered and there were individuals who were hurting. And so we were asked if we could lead some circles. And so we started to do a few circles for different organizations, for individuals. And uh, we started to just have them so that people could have a safe place to talk. And lots of times we say that, you know, there's, we have these safe places, but really what has been for me pushing safety is it's genuine safety in that, yes, if you want to open up and speak here, you can. And what you say here stays here. It doesn't go out and you don't hear your boss talking about it or somebody else bringing it up because this is a place where you were able to open up and share what was hurting you and, uh, and possibly share with others. So we did a few of those. And then in the, the fall of 2020, we uh, realized that uh, women needed some circles. And we ended up doing about six women's circles. And as Indigenous women, we were kind of like being the caregivers. We were still being the workers. You know, we had all this extra going on on our plates at the beginning of COVID. And we were being stretched in many, many directions. So we uh, did about six circles. And then... Um, came to uh, be that we needed to consult with our Indigenous colleagues about what they wanted to see around wellness. So we did some more circles with Elder Phil Lane. And uh, then last year, we, um, we set out to uh, create a bit of a strategy, a bit of an action plan. And what has come out of that is, is we've had two teachings of the sharing circle for uh, Indigenous um, employees in government. And so we now have 15 more folks who are leads, and I think about 75 people have taken the, the session in total. So it's kind of like now we can spread some of that. Uh, we've created some messaging that we can go out uh, with. Uh, the circles is uh, the big thing. We've created a resource page. We've uh, worked, collaborated with the Indigenous Services a wellness team to look at expanding the resources to a compendium of resources that are Indigenous specific. We're creating now more and more messaging, looking at not only the commemorative days for Indigenous people, but uh, mental health days. We needed to start to look at the messaging to say, how do we bring all of this together? And so being mindful that we can't single out one thing. We have to look at the layers that are out there and how they all come together and how we're impacted by it. So women have been looked at around mental health and we've always had uh, resources available to us. Maybe not always the best resources because they were designed by men. Uh, and we're treating women by men mm -hmm. as opposed to women being treated by women. So that's shifting now. And then, of course, men weren't allowed to talk about uh, their own mental health. And we're slowly getting back into saying, like, you know what? Men, you need to be able to talk about this. We need to be able to talk together. Yeah, we're different, but, but we're like this. And um, so we look at a lot of those things um, in terms of what's happening. So we've got a lot of the circles on the go. And the circles, we tend to, we keep them at about 20 people so that folks can really share. And they're about two hours long. Uh, we have had circles just for Francophone Indigenous employees, for English only, we have them for men, we have them for women, we have them for executive women. We do try to be mindful that even within the Indigenous realm, uh, we want to be able to connect sometimes with um, folks who, who are more like-minded of, of what we're doing. Yeah. Does that help? That really helps. Thank you for um, for shedding light on that. And I wanted to know, uh, you know, in terms of wellness, uh, mental health, self-care, and equity, diversity, and inclusion, those sort of prongs sort of coming together at this time. Some people may say that EDI is not connected to wellness or that wellness is not connected to EDI. Mm -hmm. Is there maybe a few thoughts you could share on how, they, how you view those two? 
I'm going to say, I'm going to take it from the Indigenous perspective, because one of the things that we look at in the whole Many Voices, One Mind is to, to look at um, uh, recruitment, retention, and career advancement. And sometimes people think, well, what does that got to do with wellness? The thing is, is when we recruit you into government, if we're not looking after you, you start to maybe wonder why you're here or what is your value? And, and that impacts who you are. It impacts where you are, maybe on your medicine wheel, where you are in your psyche, it makes a difference. And then of course, um, you know, in terms of your career advancements or your retention, uh, what are we doing to make sure that we are uh, providing a safe place for you to be able to talk to your managers, to your colleagues? What are some of the networks that are available? Uh, within the KCII, we've created a career roadmap. We've created um, a navigators, uh, Indigenous navigators program. Uh, we're looking at uh, talent management. We're looking at mentoring. We're looking at coaching because they're all connected to how we respond and how we feel about ourselves. The thing is, is that we're all at different phases. Oftentimes when we learn something, so here I am, a 60-year-old woman, and I keep thinking, I wish I knew what I know now when I was 30. Well, the thing is, is I had to learn those things at 30 so that I could be who I am today at 60. And we have to be mindful that we have to walk this journey. And it's okay to walk the journey, but it's okay. Do I need resources? What are those resources I need? Um, and sometimes we, we have fixated in our head that things have to be a certain way in order for us to tap into them, uh, to reach out to them. And in, in all honesty, it's going to look different for every single individual. When I first got into employment equity, uh, it was way back in the 90s, probably early 2000s. One of the things was is that I would tell people is, is that this is not a nine to five job. When I think about employment equity, it's 24 seven because it's a part of who I am. It's not something that I turn on and turn off at the end of the day. And it was because I was an indigenous woman and that's how I saw the world. It didn't mean that I didn't have healthy boundaries to say that I never stopped working. It's that when I was out and about, I was mindful that people had differences. Um, and those differences were, you know, I met a, uh, became good friends with a Muslim woman. And she introduced me to her way of thinking and, and being, and it was beautiful. And I learned so much. Uh, you know, I, I have a Jewish friend and I, I had no idea some of the things that they went through other than what I learned about um, the Holocaust and that. So what I found is, is that I had people in my life that taught me things about what I brought into the workplace and what I learned in the workplace, I also brought outside. Now, having said that, I've been in HR forever, and uh, I shared this. Uh, I share this all the time because uh, there was a quote that I learned from a, a gentleman at a presentation a couple of years ago. But we do a great job, I think, in government around recruiting for diversity. We do. We've got all kinds of people coming to the table, and we look different. At least here, all three of us look a little bit different. You know, two young, beautiful people and an old woman. That's okay. But, you know, or two beautiful women and a young man. So we got it all. And you can look at it in any way that you want to. But in government and in most organizations, we assimilate or we um, onboard for assimilation. Meaning that, you know, I want you on my team if you fit into my nice little box. If you don't fit into my box of how I want to do my work, I really don't want you on my team. So I'm not being inclusive. And sometimes um, in government, we don't want to see that that's the way it is, but it is. And oftentimes, you know, we um, hire those we like because they remind us of who we are or they do things the way we do it or the way we like. And that's not inclusion. Inclusion is, can I handle hiring somebody who you know has a linear process when my process is circular and so when we're inclusive we allow people to be who they are and as the receiver we're able to listen to what people bring to the table as opposed to dictating I want things done this way 
which mm -hmm. is sometimes necessary. But uh, to me, that's um, what I see around uh, diversity and inclusion. And when you look at wellness, wellness is really being good about who you are to begin with. You can't change anything and you can't make anybody else better mm -hmm. if you're not looking after yourself. So if you have to do just the DREAM acronym, then you do that. But you need to be able to be looking after yourself. I'm hopeful that when I leave, that you guys as the younger generation are going to really be able to establish a new culture. Mm -hmm. And you need the old mindset to leave so that the young, invigorated new mindset can take over. Mm -hmm. And become that, that face of the new government. And then that you'll be inclusive. And when you're inclusive there, you'll start to be well. But I've been around a lot of people who are not well, and they want everybody else to make them well in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. We all have to figure out our own wellness journey. And then we can help each other. You've been remote working for like 20 plus years in the region. And we just started here and on the NCR and on a wide scale because of COVID. You know what? COVID has taught us a lot. And uh, it's, but it's like anything you have to, um, and I think we can all do this. Uh, I, I don't remember where I got this, but I can remember being, of, uh, being very negative minded. And I, it dawned on me one day, I can see the good or I can see the bad. And once I started shifting that and started to see, we all have it. We all have that spectrum. None of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to see in folks? We learn what we can do. You know, courts shut down. Uh, hospitals were able to do things that they couldn't do before. And at work, holy crap, we're all on uh, online now. You mm -hmm. know, we know what we can do now. And that's the beauty of COVID is we're able to do a whole lot more. I wanted to backtrack just a little bit. and. Um... If you could take us back to kind of like your HR days or even your current days right now, like if there is a story of maybe a mediation that you were part of that surprised you, and uh, maybe if we could hear hear one where uh, perhaps the outcome wasn't wasn't exactly what you wanted. Yeah, hmm. I think it was a drop. I really wanted to share that one because mm -hmm. drop stood for deficit reduction. Uh, action plan mm -hmm. and it was how we were to downsize and uh, I had a team of um, of 32 and we actually downsized to less than 10 when I came to, to Ottawa in, in 2015 but before that it was kind of um, I had been in the hospital I was going in for day surgery I told my boss I was going in and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a day off because I always worked uh, six days a week, uh, 10 hour days. And, mm -hmm. and I thought I should I should be able to take one day off for day surgery uh, and maybe a couple of extra days to recover. I went in for my surgery, I decided to just go out and about because I was still on the anesthetic and I was still floating a little bit. So I wasn't feeling anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I get home and I thought, oh, I better check my Blackberry. And so I look at it and there's all these messages. I'm thinking, what the hell? My boss knows that I had surgery today. I phone and uh, apparently he says, well, all of this is going on. They want to give out notices. And I'm thinking, what do you mean notices? And they, oh, well, all of management sector, corporate uh, or corporate people are going to get notices that they might, uh, their job is affected. So oh. that meant 104 employees in our Prairie region was going to do this. Well, the only one who could do it was me. And oh, I'm God. thinking... I said, I just had surgery. I needed a couple of days just to recuperate. Anyways, it worked out that um, I didn't uh, get that night off. I slept most of the next day. And about Friday at around 3 p.m., um, I uh, started and we worked nonstop throughout the weekend. Uh, I worked with colleagues in Ottawa. We worked around the clock getting uh, all set up for it. And because I worked in the Prairie region, we were in uh, Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg. So we got all of this set up. And um, during this whole time, you know, I'm, I'm recovering from the surgery. Um, and I had gone in because the, the, the doctor had said, like, look, at, we don't know what we're going to find. 
if uh, if it's not good, uh, we're going to close you up and we'll just let you know what the what, where we're going to go. But if things turn out okay, then we should be fine in a couple of weeks. Having said that, um, <clears throat> when I came out, he says that you're going to be fine. Uh, we have to do a couple of things and you should be fine in a couple of weeks. I give you this as a preamble because I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be okay. <clears throat> but come the Monday after the weekend, I then have to put together a team of people who are going to have to meet across all the offices. I have four offices mm -hmm. of individuals who are going to be getting notices and I need people at all of them. And I need people who are non-unionized and who are able to do it. I ended up calling three people in off of long-term sick leave. Oh, two were on long-term sick leave. One was, um, had lost three parents and needed their leave. Oh, and I no. tracked down an employee who had been hiking the West Coast Trail and had to drive 17 hours to get back to help me out. What? So I did all of this. And um, needless to say, I'm thinking, okay, we had to bring EAP in, make sure there was one at, in all the offices. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we're all ready to go. We've, we've got everything. And so on the Wednesday, I think it was uh, almost a week after it all started, I had to make sure every, everybody was set up. Wednesday morning comes the guy who had traveled 17 hours. Uh, he meets the regional director, I don't know, about 10 kilometers outside of Edmonton. They do a transfer of uh, information. And then this guy flies to Calgary because he's going to be my guy in uh, Calgary giving the news. Mm -hmm. I had my team in Winnipeg who are giving the news. And I had my team in Saskatoon and then my team in, in Edmonton, which was the largest team. And we're getting through and we did kind of have a bit of a debrief because we have to do this all at the same time. It was had to be synced and everything. Oh, God. And um, it's happening. <laughs> uh, so then I go, it dawned on me after we have our first debrief in the morning, we don't have any water or Kleenex. And I'm thinking, what the heck? And uh, so I tell my uh, EA, I said, like, just run over to Staples, pick this up and then come right back. And uh, so she did that. And it cost all of $8, right? making sure we had enough boxes of Kleenex, enough bottles of water and everything. Oh, man. And I tell my staff and I have to give. So all of us who are all on this, everybody, all of us get our letters. And I go, look, at, you're getting your letter now. I'm really sorry about this. But I said, you cannot fall apart until we have dealt this with, with this afterwards. And once we've mm -hmm. done all of this, then you guys, if you need a day or two off, you take it and we'll mm -hmm. go from there. So all of this happens. And so we start to give the notices. The managers are giving their meeting with their teams, meeting with all these individuals. And we go about uh, doing all of this. It's over by about three. And I asked my EA at, at that time too. I said, like, just watch people as they're going into the washroom and let me know. Because as people were going in, we knew that it wasn't a good thing. And so we had to go and make sure that they were okay. Mm -hmm. And we really made sure that people had taxi chits so that they could get home, that they, people would come and pick them up. Because it was a horrible day. It was just yeah. a horrible day. In the end, uh, everybody finally disappears. And I'm thinking, thank God. And I let people, I didn't care. I said, just take whatever time you need. It's Wednesday. If you come back in on Monday, I'll just check in on everybody the next day. I go into my office. Not one person from management or from the NCR calls to check in to see how we are. Oh. And I just kind of like, I shut my door and I lost it. I just kind of like slid down my door and I cried and I cried mm -hmm. and I cried because I just wanted one person. Mm -hmm in all of government to show that they cared about us and they didn't. So that was a shocker. That was a, a huge shocker. And then the next day, you know, when my, uh, <laughs> we had to reconcile all of our expenses and whatnot, we got our hands slapped for using the credit card to buy Kleenex and water. And I thought, how callous can you be? But this was government. It's all about process. There is nothing to do with the human spirit whatsoever. So from there, it was just a real eye-opener in terms of no matter how much you as an individual might care for people, the system doesn't care all the time. Oh, and it's making sure that you always have a team of people who are there to support you and who believe in you because it's, it's hard. And I know we say all the right words a lot of times, 
people don't need words. They need actions. Yeah. And what do those actions look like? I think sometimes it's what we're doing. At least I think that's what we're doing at the Knowledge Circle for our Indigenous and colleagues now. I have a bit of um, hurt still about labor relations, knowing that they can do a better job mm -hmm. in terms of really helping people and, and being, remembering that, yeah, you're going to have people who you can't ever uh, help. But for the most part, if you can help them, help them. Thank you for sharing it, even though, you know, it brings up so many memories and so many emotions. I'm glad that your team had you to think about that human element. To have that and just to finish that story in terms of what should have taken two weeks for me to heal, I wasn't given clearance for almost five months later. So the stress of that impacted God. me that whole time. And I had to be mindful of constantly making sure that I was okay in the end. Our bodies tell us when we're okay. Our minds, we have to listen to what our bodies say. And our spirit, we can feel it in our spirit. And mm -hmm. it's with our emotions. It's all about striking that balance. Well, Alexis, I could listen to your stories forever. Same here. Uh, thank you just for thinking of me and for wanting me to share with you. Thanks so much, Absolutely. Alexis. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ideanomics podcast. We hope it was enjoyable for you as it was for us. For more anti-racism news, please follow us on our social media channels on Twitter, Iran Network underscore PS, and our LinkedIn, Anti-Racism Ambassadors Network. If you would like us to discuss any topics on the podcast, or if you have any questions, please DM us on our social channels or email us at aran.publicservants at gmail.com. This episode was hosted by Sean Karamadi and Neha Shezad and produced by Marcella Popovich. Thanks so much and see you next time.